This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the blog to watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, Ariel Adams here with the Superlative Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Nirupesh Joshi. He is the co-founder of the Bangalore Watch Company. Nirupesh, welcome. Thank you very much, Ariel. It's uh, fantastic to be here. Now, we've known each other for a number of years now. I would say from the very beginning of your brand. And I think what people sort of need to know is, first of all, who you are and what your involvement in the watch industry is. Now, the good thing about the way you named your company is there's no questions about what the company does, right? <laughs> of course. Uh, <laughs> you're really limiting yourself there, right? Because if you ever want to do anything other than watches, you got to start You got to change the name or start another company. Of course. But you, I guess, as the name implies, are, are to a degree making watches in Bangalore. Why, why are you doing that? And, and, and talk a little bit about the business. Oh, thank you. No, uh, you're right. I'm I'm the co-founder of Bangalore Watch Company. We're based in Bangalore, India. Um, uh, my wife, Mercy, and I, we run the brand together. And we've been around for four and a half years now. We started our journey in 2018. Um, and just, you know, quickly in short, the idea was to look at watches that are coming from India and say, hey, why isn't there watchmaking in India to a higher degree? which also encompasses good quality watchmaking at the same time with modern Indian stories. And this is one thing as we evolved as, as watch buyers and watch lovers, we felt a gap. We did not find anything that appealed to us. And obviously we didn't jump into it and start a watch company overnight. It was a process. It took us a couple of years to get to that decision. But the idea is to create high quality watches from India with the uh, Indian narratives that are modern, um, from from a 21st century point of view. Now, I think before we <clears throat> talk more about the company, we should talk about the watch market and uh, watch appreciation in general. In India, it is my experience as someone who has not been there um, and is not Indian that India is a real major center of watch love. Um, I think what's important is that everywhere I've gone in the world, in every city, there's Indian people there in the watch industry that love watches. So Indian people are represented in the watch industry uh, as, as, as people working in it or just enthusiasts in every major city around the world and not just India. So I think that's actually something interesting and, and worth mentioning. And there is a there is an enormous passion uh, for for watches and mechanical things in India. I don't know all the reasons, but I just want to say that in my experience, the Indian demographic represents a very significant part of the larger watch consumer demographic out there. Um, but I'm sure you're going to add to that. What, what, how would you add to that? No, you're absolutely right. I think I think you have to wind back uh, time a little bit and look at history. Uh, watches have always been closely associated with India, so much so that stories about how the JLC Reverso came about was uh, when British people were playing polo in India, they felt that there was a need for a watch where the watch wouldn't get hurt if they're playing horse polo. Um, so they they created that watch, the Reverso. So I think watches in India, there's always been a close tie, uh, especially after over the last um, seven or eight decades after India's independence. Um, there's been a meteoric rise in the economy. Um, lots of people uh, who are upwardly mobile moving to the larger cities in India and also having the opportunity to move overseas, as you rightly said, well-traveled, well-read, 
uh, and are beginning to appreciate all the nicer things in life, uh, including but not limited to watches. As we speak, um, just uh, this past week, all the finalists of GPAG of 2022 uh, were actually displayed in Delhi. And there was an event uh, for two days there. Um, I think that, that just wound down uh, this past weekend. So what about in Bangalore? I mean, Bangalore, as as an American, I know, has a big uh, tech side to it, of course. There's, of course, traditionally been a lot of people doing sort of uh, outsourced customer service and other human tasks and things like that over the Internet. Is there a watch enthusiast community in Bangalore proper? Yes, there is. There's, As a matter of fact, there's watch enthusiast communities in all major cities, Mumbai, Delhi, Bangalore. And there is a active, thriving community in Bangalore that appreciates all the nice watches. Um, and interestingly, Bangalore is also what I like to call ground zero for watchmaking in India. About five uh, five decades ago, there was a company that was started in India uh, in partnership with Citizen of Japan. This company was called HMP, and they were headquartered in mm-hmm. Bangalore. They started 50 years ago to make watches in India. They're Allah Raketa of Russia. Um, you know, we started HMT in India around the same time period. And even now, the largest, one of the largest watch companies in the world, owned by the Indian Tata Group, uh, it's called Titan. Titan Watches is also headquartered here in Bangalore. So there's a very active, not only a watch appreciating community, also watchmaking, watch component manufacturing ecosystem in, in Bangalore. And you don't really see Titan watches outside of India very much. Do you know why that is? Um, that's a very interesting question. Look, I mean, they make about 15 million watches a year. Um, their largest, wow. uh, I think they're at par, if not on the same lines of uh, some of the Swatch Group brands that we see. Um, but their largest market opportunity is India. They cater to every Indian, at least the ones that I know of, grew up wearing a Titan. I grew up in the 80s and I, I grew up wearing a Titan. It's like the Swatch or the Timex in the U.S., um, or Swatch in Europe. Uh, so Titan's largest market opportunity is India, and I think they continue to focus on that opportunity and do quite well. And they have made investments externally. Uh, the Tata Group uh, owned, for example, Favre Luba. They still own it. Um, and they are you know, branching out a little bit, and I think that there's some higher-end Titan watches that um, they're trying to see if they could appeal to markets outside of India. But let's go back to the Bangalore Watch Company. Now, this isn't just an entrepreneurial venture because, of course, it was for you and your wife. But there's also sort of a passion, right? Like if you just want to make money, it's kind of a funny thing to do it with watches. Talk about this intersection of obviously doing an entrepreneurial endeavor, but also doing something that is, I guess you could say, emotionally satisfying and artistic. No, you're absolutely right. I, I spent... Uh almost two decades in the tech industry. My wife and I, we worked in tech. We've called Bangalore home for almost 20 years now, but we've had the opportunity to move in and out of Bangalore like a lot of the tech people. We lived um, in the US for a while. We lived in Seoul, South Korea, and then we got the opportunity to live in Hong Kong, and that's when we were exposed to the wonderful world of watches. So I don't have a story where I came into watches with a grandfather's Omega that was passed down to me. I came into watches much later, uh, when we lived overseas, we got exposed to all these nice watches. And that that's the exposure. And that's when we started looking back home, frankly, when we got exposed to some of these nice watches to say, hey, what's happening with watches back home? Um, and, you know, sadly, we found that there was no uh, watch company that was building watches to a respectable, high quality, a high degree of 
attention to detail with the Indian backstories that we wanted to see. Um, so it's so you're saying so you're saying Titan wasn't doing that. Why why not? So I, I think that if you look at the grammar of Indian watch design, uh, this is mm-hmm. our personal opinion, and that that opinion sure. is that the grammar of Indian watch design is outdated because when you think of watches in India. Of course, we have a little bit of a baggage, and I think it's it's fair to say um, everybody here, the listeners, would probably be aware. If you think of watches in India, definitely the the repainted dials on eBay and the Franken watches come you know come to fore. There's no conversation that you can have without mentioning them. There's a little bit of baggage there, but if you look at proper watches from India, there's either the Indian fonts, the numerals on the dial, and they call it an India Limited Edition. Or they'd put a Indian god on the watch dial, or they'll put the Taj Mahal on the back of the watch, and they'll call it an India edition. And our opinion is that that grammar of design is outdated. It's uh, very, you know, pre-colonial. It does not reflect what India is today, which is a very modern 21st century um, country that's that's uh, very ambitious with a, with ambitious population. So we wanted to make watches not only of a high degree, but also reflective of what India is today um, with a with a global design uh, that appeals to uh, a population worldwide. Now, you said something earlier that I think is interesting, how you had to become a watch person while living outside of India, you know, in Hong Kong. And that's actually not an uncommon story. In fact, a lot of people traveling to what Hong Kong was uh, became very romance on watches because of that. Not exclusively, uh, but it, it is true that travel is really important sometimes in unlocking the watch lover within. What do you think could be done differently at home in Bangalore or in India in general to make it so that you could become a watch enthusiast um, endemically and you wouldn't have to necessarily travel abroad to get this to get this uh, this, this watch collecting virus and then bring it back home and spread it around <laughs> you know that's a, that's a fantastic question as a matter of fact a lot is happening in that front especially in the last decade I'll, I'll give you some examples if um, when we started traveling that was you know, almost a decade ago decade and a half ago and that's when we had to go overseas to be exposed to some of the nice watches over the last especially over the last six seven years, Taxation has become very easy in India. Doing business in India has become very easy. There's a huge influx of all the brands that are now coming into India. So if you're starting with watches today, you don't have to go overseas. There's a thriving watch community in India. There's very professional retailers that make all the brands available if you're a watch enthusiast in India. So that's that's, uh, changed a lot. That scene looks very different now than it did a decade ago. So... You wanted to start a watch brand, and that's not easy to do. I think many people who want to go into this think it's going to be easier than it is. And I'm not saying it's impossible. It's doable. But I'd love it if you could mention some of the really major hurdles you had in the process of getting the brand started. Maybe some of of what are some of the biggest hurdles right now that people from the outside might not necessarily know about. Yeah, great question. No, look, I think the first, like any other entrepreneurial journey, is is a personal hurdle. Is this really you, something that you want to do? I, I had a job. I, I was I was a in a in a mid management position uh, with a comfortable paycheck. My my wife and I had the opportunity to travel around the world. Um, so the first hurdle, obviously, is a personal hurdle. Uh, do you want to leave all that behind and go into the unknown? And just as any other entrepreneurial journey goes and that was it took us a while to get over that and not something that that decision was made overnight um, it took us almost a year 
of, of thinking about before we made that decision. But especially specifically to watches, I think uh, as much as there is a there's a thriving ecosystem of watches now, um, what's missing is manufacturing ecosystem to the degree if you want to produce really high quality watches. Um, it's not like there's a movement manufacturer in India that we can rely on. Today we use um, some of the Swiss movement manufacturers. Um, and we also rely on some other component manufacturers overseas to produce components to a higher degree than what what is perhaps available in India. So the biggest uh, hurdle after the personal hurdle was identifying an ecosystem of manufacturers and suppliers that are able to meet your quality requirements and able to meet your uh, design requirements for when you start putting out your watches. And of course, the second biggest thing was the perception. That's also something that you know, it's it's a four and a half years journey. We still see some of that. Um, it's a percep- uh, perception of, if I were to tell you that, hey, there's this amazing cloud security tech company and they, they have a huge engineering office in Bangalore, you'd believe that. But if I were to tell you that there's a watch company which makes really high quality watches and they make, they put everything together in Bangalore, um, you know, that, that raises an eyebrow and we understand that. So that's also a hurdle that I think was significant for us to get through. Spend a little bit more time on this sort of idea of speaking with suppliers and the people that help you, there is an infrastructure out there that makes watch components and movements and can do assembly. And, and there are all the companies out there that can do you know all the necessary things. Yet it's more than that, right? It's more than knowing there's a bunch of potential suppliers out there. You not only have to order the right products at the right price, but get actually put this thing together, which sometimes people forget that after you order all the parts, you still need to assemble it, do quality control and things like that. You know, how how difficult was that for you to set up both? I guess you could say the supply chain part of it, but also the the part of putting it together, because, you know, the name Bangalore Watch Company, uh, I think, you know, implies you're putting it together, which I know you do. But what's it like to set something like that up and, and, and you know, talk a little bit more about the details? No, you, sure. Um, if you if you think of the beginning, I mean, um, I think it's easy, as you said, to go to a, um, a watch manufacturer and have them show you their catalog and say, I like these three models, just change the logo on them and, and send me 500 pieces. Um, that's definitely decidedly a path that we chose not to follow. We chose the harder path of finding a designer, hiring a designer beginning to ask the question of, hey, who's our target audience? What kind of watches do we think they'd like to wear? And what kind of watches do we like to wear that's missing right now that we also may think that there's a larger market opportunity for? Um, so that sort of process of exploration took a while. I took a lot of, I'll, I'll give a lot of credit to Watch You Seek. I spent a lot of time there looking for people, looking for designers, and that's how we got into contact with somebody. And then when we started designing the watch, it, it was later the realization that, Hey, it's not sufficient if you design a good watch. You have to be able to translate that design into manufacturing, which is when we realize that the process of manufacturing, prototyping, is much longer. Today, any new watch takes us a year, sometimes longer, from from drawing board all the way to seeing the first legit prototypes. Um, We, uh, frankly, at the early stages, underestimated the amount of time that we have to invest in design prototyping, multiple iterations and prototyping until we get the final product. Uh, Coming from the tech industry, uh, we assume that things move slightly faster because in tech, when you have to make a change to the entire platform and push it out to 
10,000 users, you make a change, uh, a code change, and it goes out. Um, so here, the, the process is much longer. So that was really a learning point. But I think one of the things that for Mercy and me, we were invested in doing the right things, building a brand for the long term, and not compromising on quality. And I think it made it harder to find the suppliers that um, matched with our vision and our goals. But I, I give a lot of credit to the community for uh, helping us to find some of those people that that you know that provided us the contacts to get started. Now I think you can understand why so many companies, maybe due to frustration, less than economic um, incentives, just want to do it themselves. You know, they want to do this process themselves. They want to be able to produce this piece themselves. They want to do this assembly themselves. Um, you know, economically, it makes I think more sense for more people to you know, loan out labor and production to other companies. When the watch space, these timeframes, being able to do it correctly, being able to do it faster, that's a really big part of why people do it in-house. And have you found that that is a trend for you, that as business continues and you, you are successful because you continue and you release new watches, are you bringing more things in-house or are you sort of happy with where you're at and you want to sort of remain a little bit loose and not have to be tied down with all this this heavy manufacturing or assembly or, or whatever? Which, which one is it? No, I think you're, you know, you're 100% correct that as you grow as a brand, as uh, your, your demands from your customers are increasing, uh, you start to bring more things internally uh, than you would uh, because you, you want more control. Uh, for example, today we make our hands, uh, watch hands entirely in India and watch dials for some of the models entirely in India with the suppliers that work with some of the largest uh, brands that we know in Switzerland. We are probably their smallest customer by volume. It took us a couple of years to convince them to get us, get them to work with us because we told them that, look, we're really trying to bring uh, a build a brand from India for the world with a decidedly higher quality. So we think you're you're the right supplier for us and manufacturing partner for us. So we, we brought in dial manufacturing and hands manufacturing to India. Uh, we now recently just invested in our own space, in our own laboratory. Uh, we partnered with Wishy. Uh, so we can now do complete testing of water tightness, anti-magnetic checking. We can regulate the watches. Um, so yes, absolutely, the direction is towards bringing more and more internally uh, as as we go. Now, I'm going to ask more of a maybe philosophical question, but why does that give the community there more what they want? Like, and, and again, you see this trend in places all over the world, frankly, where there's a culture that has been collecting watches for long enough, and somebody at some point says, well, let's try to build watches here. And we've seen over the last decade, at least, the, tri the resurgence of attempts at American watchmaking, um, it, which has gone pretty far, but still has a ways to go. Um, you see that in other countries, England had it before that. And uh, obviously in Japan right now, they make you know a lot of watches, but there's sort of this crafts community of watchmakers starting to come about a little bit more. W why is it that you know there tends to be this notion, this desire at some point of we like watches and we want a watch which is made here? Try to explain the psychology around that if you can. Well, that's a, that's a great question. I think, I think it depends on you know, it's very cultural. I believe majority of the Asian countries had a lot of Western influence. If you look at the last two, three decades, and this is my personal opinion, is that as these Asian countries, the economies grow in size and influence, and as you know, we like to call it soft power grows, um, you start looking inward. 
uh, and you start saying, now look, I, I know that this, this, you know, this brand from Switzerland is fantastic. I know a lot of people that are in my community that own this watch, but how do I start looking in India to see if I can have something more unique, something that I can emotionally connect with, something that tells a story that may have something to do with my life. I think it's not just in India. I think that that same trend is happening across across the world. And examples, as you said, I mean, look at British watch manufacturing, especially now in the last ten years. You know, I speak some. I speak with some of the brand owners there. We we've, we've become quite an acquaintance now. Uh, it's fantastic how they're trying to. There's a resurgence of British watchmakers now, and the same as you said, same things happening in with made in America watchmaking now. Uh, I think that trend is very cultural. Uh, we look outside our borders and. As we grow, as we mature as collectors and enthusiasts, we start looking back home to see what's uh, uh, what there is that we can emotionally connect with. And how do you translate that into a product, right? You've done various different ways of doing that, starting with the very classic watch, which was how the company started, which was a nice piece, to ones which have an increasing amount of character. I know it's a journey that never stops, but what have you learned in just the last several years about how to incorporate local character visually and emotionally? I think that's a good question. Look, I mean, if you if you remember what I said at the beginning, we wanted to say, okay, look, the, the grammar of Indian watch design now, in our opinion, is outdated. Uh, at the same time, we wanted to bring uh, watches with a very modern contemporary flair in design with a lot of design details that translate back to backstories from India. At the same time, it's really challenging to have a fine balance between what is something um, when you cross the line and, and it suddenly becomes kitschy, you don't want to do that, you know. So it's a it's a really hard challenge to say and to know when to stop. Uh, but if that's that's a constant process, as you said. If you look at the past three years after the first dress watch, we did a we did a pilot watch that's inspired by the Indian Air Force and Indian aviation. Uh, we followed that up by another sports watch, uh, steel sports watch uh, that's inspired by the game of cricket. Uh, cricket's loved by a billion people in India and also multiple countries overseas. I know in the US, cricket is not um, as big as it is in the UK or Australia and some of the other countries. I mean, most recently, we did another watch collection that celebrates the Indian space program. So we look at backstories that we think are emotionally binding us and then we try to translate the details from that backstory into a contemporary watch design that not only appeals to an Indian audience, but also a global audience. And at some point, we have to say, look, let's draw the line, because if you go any more, any further than this, then it's going to become kitschy and you're, you're not you're suddenly going to stop appealing to a more global audience. So that's a that's a challenging process. Kitschy is a good term because. I think it applies to when you try to create a themed watch, but you don't do it tastefully, and it ends up being themed, just not being cool. And that's a real risk, right? Because to make something themed but be cool is the ultimate difficulty. As a creative person, I know you have to rely on designers and things like that. Where do you gain the knowledge of how to incorporate the good taste? Is it taken trial and error? Do you just inherently know? Because I think that what a lot of people don't understand is when you're an entrepreneur, you have to be the ultimate say in all the creative decisions. Final product, final graphic, final advertising, final this, final that. 
Where do you develop an internal sense of this is right and this is wrong, where you just sort of learn along the way and being an entrepreneur is just not being afraid to take those risks? I, I think it's uh, all of the above. <laughs> you, I, I think what happens over a period of time, if you, if you like watches, and I haven't been in watches for too long, but per- personally, I've developed a certain taste. Um, I, for, for example, uh, I don't like skeleton dials. I like classic watches where I could tell the time clearly. And it's a very personal choice. I know there's millions of people that like skeleton dials, that like, that like watches that are a little, uh, you know, a little overboard in design. Uh, but I've developed my own personal taste in design and in watches. And 100% that personal taste of design and watches translate to the kind of products we make, to the creatives we make, to the brand imagery. Um, and of course, there's a design team that we work with, but there is a lot of personal influence in that. So one is you learn, as you look at more watches, you learn to figure out what what are some of the things you like personally, what are some of the things you don't. Um, and also you hope that you're building a brand for a target audience, for a group of demographic that are able to relate to uh, the brand's um, design choices over a period of time. And, you know, knock on wood, we've been extremely lucky with that. Uh, we have a very small but loyal followership um, where they, you know, they like the designs that we've done up until now. So I, I believe there's a certain element of affinity to the kind of designs that we do. So one, you look at what watches over a period of time, you pick up a certain design taste that translates to it. And also there's also beyond watches, there's a certain element of personal taste, uh, a very minimalistic, simple, classic design taste that translates into it. Um, and of course, there's the element of risk where as an entrepreneur, you're you're saying, hey, I'm gonna, I, I think this is a cool watch. I think there's a uh, customer base that will think this is a cool idea and a cool watch. But you won't know the answer until the watch is out, until the press release is out, until the watch is released, and you start getting those phone calls. For instance, when we did the Apogee series, which is celebrating the Indian space program, it's a titanium cushion case, dual crown, microbead blasted case, completely off the left field. It has an internal rotating bezel. You know, we really pushed ourselves with that watch. And it's a very polarizing watch. There's a segment of people that love that case design. And then there's a segment of people that think that that case design is a little too overboard because they like very simple circular cases. So there is an element of risk as, you know, when you're building a business until you, the watch is out there, you, you don't know if it's going to work or not. And have you done things that just haven't worked yet? I mean, or so far, like are there things that have just been, been failures? Um, look, I, I think every failure you learn from it, I think there are some colors, dial colors that we thought would work that perhaps didn't work as well, as well as we expected, uh, in some of the variations, but, uh, across the collections, we haven't had, uh, any watch so far. We've done four collections, distinct collections. We haven't had any collection that we would declare as a, you know, as a, as a failure. Now, are there, th- I'm sure there's things that you didn't do that maybe you planned on doing and later you realized, oh, that would have been a failure. What was I thinking? Or alternatively, <laughs> maybe I should have done that. And again, I'm, I'm really trying to focus on this because y- you know how much your job is really like just thinking about what to do next. There's no roadmap. There's no guide. There's no outline for how to run your business. Every day you wake up, you're like, <clears throat> I don't even know what to do today, but I got to do something. No, you're right. There, there have been design choices that we omitted from multiple, every watch so far. And I think, 
you know, any anyone that's listening that has a design background would know that the hardest thing to do in design is knowing when to stop. Adding things to a, to a design is very easy. Knowing when to stop is the hardest thing to do. So there's been so many times when we kept adding things, design features and details to a watch and then only going back a month down the line to say, nope, you know, I think we went too far. Go back, take this out, take this out. And then the final product looks very different from the initial drawings that we did. Um, and I think I, I sometimes we've shown some of those sketches in private, uh, you know, interactions with some of our uh, early customers, and they've said, "Oh, maybe you should have done this. I would have liked it." Uh, and then you 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 you're left wondering, should we have done it? <laughs> no, I don't know. Uh, so there there is absolutely an element of risk and an element of surprise. And just another example of one of those design details that surprised surprised us was when we did the the cover drive, which is a cricket inspired watch. We said, "Look, we're, we put a rotating bezel there, but we don't want to make it a simple countdown timer." So we put we made markings in that timer to track overs on the bezel. It's akin to innings in baseball, if you would. Uh, so you you turn the bezel and you track elapsed overs. It's a fantastic way to be part of the game. It's it's a little bit esoteric in a way because there's a score digital scoreboard in every game. You don't actually need something on your wrist to to track overs. But it's fantastic. We have a lot of people that call us and say, I'm fidgeting with the bezel all the time when I'm watching a cricket match. And it's a fantastic way to, ingenious way to bring the game and put it on the wrist. Uh, so that surprised us. And what has been some of the more unexpected feedback? Because I, I think that the feedback from the consumers must be very galvanizing. And when you get it, you feel, you feel motivated, you feel strengthened, you want to do more. I'm suspicious that even without some of the customer feedback, it'd be difficult to keep going. Talk a little bit about what some of the feedback is and how important that is for the, uh, you know, the, the process. Customer feedback is really important. The challenge for a brand like us, though, is that we have a good mix of people that um, know a lot about watches. And we also have a good mix of people that don't necessarily call themselves watch enthusiasts or watch collectors. There's, they simply gravitate towards uh, Bangalore Watch Company because of the stories we tell. So their perception of watches and the expectations on watches is entirely different from what we would see from a very watch-aware enthusiast community. One example I can give you, and, I'm, and perhaps a lot of people on on you know on the show can relate to it, is um, whether or not to include a folding clasp on the leather straps. Um, our position is that would always put it in a tank buckle because it's easy maintenance uh, and it's, it's probably the most comfortable uh, on your wrist if you have a leather strap is to use a tang buckle. Uh, but we have a, a, a big, big quarter of people that are still asking us to put a folding clasp or a butterfly clasp or, um, or a deploying clasp. Um, so that's just one example of something um, that we hear from people all the time where we're thinking ourselves, is that the right thing to do? Because doing a deploying clasp is not just um, a, a cost addition to a new product, but it's also we're thinking longer term to say, what's going to happen if straps change every 18, 24 months, especially with the vast majority of our owners uh, in India, where usually leather straps don't last as long as they would in colder temperatures. So that's an example. But we're constantly torn between people that know a lot more about watches and people that may not necessarily know a lot about watches, but they have a certain perception of what a luxury watch should look like. 
or, or features that it should have. Have you visited the gift store for watch lovers? It's called the Blog to Watch store, and we carry art, apparel, and accessories for today's timepiece enthusiasts. You can buy your wristwatches elsewhere, but at the Blog to Watch store, you can celebrate your watch collecting hobby with high quality original products. The Blog to Watch store features a line of t-shirts inspired by iconic timepieces and designed by the collecting experts at Blog to Watch. We also carry some incredible art that will grate on your walls, letting everyone know about your watch collecting enthusiasm. The bespoke yet affordable products which the Blog to Watch store carries have been designed and curated by the Blog to Watch editorial team. We ship internationally and right now are offering free global FedEx priority shipping on every shirt and watch pouch. We add new products all the time, so be sure to check out store.ablogtowatch.com. That's store.ablogtowatch.com. Do you find you spend more of your time on the product or more of your time on the brand? It's a mix of both. There are periods in a year where you spend uh, disproportionate amounts of time on the product, especially during the design phase. Um, you're constantly in design review meetings. You're looking at sketches. You spend four or five hours a day sometimes as you get closer to prototyping and final production, pre-production. Uh, and there are other times of the year where you're spending disproportionate amounts of time in branding, which is equally important. Uh, you, you know, um, and, and luckily I have a co-founder. Uh, I know a lot of brand owners that, you know, that I, I speak with and some have been on this show, Ariel, that are single person brand, uh, one person run brand. And I, I can't imagine how hard it would be as one person to do everything. And at least now here I have. Mercy, my wife and co-founder, were running the business together, so I can lean on her for a lot of the activities. Uh, but to answer your question, it's very, very depend. It's dependent on which time of the year it is. Sometimes you spend a lot of time on product, and other times you spend inordinate amounts of time in branding and, and marketing activities. Is there one of the two that you'd rather spend more time on? Like, do you have a dream? You're like, someday I'm going to delegate all of this to someone <laughs> else, and I want to focus just on this one thing right here. Look, I mean, as as uh, as the owner of a business, that you've got to have control of multiple things. Uh, you have to know how to delegate and how to still be able to get the results and outcome. Luckily, I've had management experience in the past that helps me. Frankly, today, if it wasn't for that, I don't know how we'd be doing this. Uh, but if as a personal choice, I'd rather have like a head of product design with basic guidelines that can take care of production, design, manufacturing, uh, or rather a head of products and spend as much time as I can. And what I think I enjoy personally and what I think I, you know, I, I do better, which is being in front of our customers, being in front of people to talk about the brand and to explain the narrative of what we're trying to do from India. You know, it's funny because if you ask that same question to you know, a cross-section of, of, of brand founders and co-founders, you'll actually have a very diverse uh, series of responses. Not everyone would say what you said about wanting to spend more time in front of the consumer telling the story. Some people say, I want to be making watches. Some people say, I want to be selling watches. Some people say, I want to be CEO and traveling. It's it's something that's, I, I think, worth mentioning, that the the personality or the drive of someone who starts a small independent watch brand other than wanting to have a brand, can be very, very different. And you know, you, you need to have it all over the place. But that's why the brands all over the, are, are all over the place, because the people who are starting them fundamentally find different things interesting, and there's a lot to the watch industry you need to do right. And ultimately, you have to market well, 
You have to be good at customer service, design, manufacturing, logistics. All of these things are necessary to have a competitive product. Um, and and are, you, are you finding that, you know, your tendency is to sort of hire the people that do the things you're not good at? No, I think, look, I think I think it's a fantastic question. Any new business owner should learn to do this, in my opinion. And I'm not a management guru. I just, I'm lucky to have a little bit of management experience under the belt. And this is one of the things that I've learned is when you go from being an individual contributor to managing a team of individual contributors, uh, what got you here won't get you there. So you have to know how to delegate and you have to be invested in the success of other people. And most importantly, you have to know what you're not good at and put your hand up and say, I need help. I don't think, I think there are other people that can do this better than I do. And you should just be conscious of that. And, and becoming aware of that is a, is an extremely important thing as, a, as any new business owner. And I'm just, just lucky that I had a little bit of experience doing that, but you're hundred percent correct. It's a, it's important to do that. And we we're now beginning to put a team together that, that can do it. Um, you know, we now have a couple of people that we call ownership experience managers. They come from some stellar customer service experience, places like American Express, places, places like Go Concept. Um, and we, we bring them and we teach them watches because we know they do customer service really well. They may not know as much watches, but we can teach them watches and they can do customer service really well. So we've been really lucky to, to put together a small, small team of people um, to do that. So wait, so is that is that your your call center? The people that take the incoming, you know, people's interest and chat with them on the phone, essentially. I mean, is that is that what you're talking about, or is it more than that? Um, so it's not a call center. We only have two people that do this today. So we're about an eight or nine people team in in Bangalore. I'm imagining you having a big call center with watch salespeople. This is I'm just I'm I hate to be cliche about it, but you know this is what you're building. To. I, I I know it it is a cliche. Bangalore and a and a call center. Yeah. Um, no, but look, but we have we have we're extremely lucky. We have two people, uh, Cheryl and Arif. They're they're our ownership experience managers. Their job. Anybody emails us. Anybody that calls in starts by asking the questions to understand how they heard about us and and pick up that conversation from there. They love talking watches, so they, you know, they're going to have a good watch conversation, and they're going to help people make a purchase. And and as I said, you know, we in the early days it was Mercy and me that's the, that were doing this. Um, some of our customers still have my direct phone number; they're still going to call me. But I think we're beginning to build a team that that are really good at this and identifying. Look, we need to have the people that are good at this to do certain things, and I think that's an important. Uh, conscious decision that you have to make as a business owner. So moving forward, you know, as you keep growing, you need to make more money and to make more money, either you sell more watches or or increase the price point and things like that. Obviously, you can't keep doing every job forever. And it sounds like you're so fortunate that after just a few years, you were able to, you know, significantly start to delegate. How how big do you think you want to get? I'm sure you've mapped out like an ideal size, uh, or is the sky's the limit and you'll get as big as you can get? So I think the the fundamental question we're asking ourselves is what's the purpose of this brand? And we're defining it. You know, we're saying, look, we'll, we just stand for three things. One is, you know, we'll make watches. Each watch collection will have a backstory from India uh, with a very modern point of view. These will be contemporary watches. The second promise that we make in the brand is we'll never compromise on quality. We'll make respectable quality watches um, that stand its ground. I mean, look at, you know, be it 
all the, the vital statistics, right? Be it sapphire glass, surgical grade steel, decent quality Swiss movement. Uh, we'll make watches. If, if we don't think this is a watch we would wear, we will not make it. Um, that's a simple promise. And the third, and this is something we're really proud of, is that we promise to provide our owner's community a superlative ownership experience. I know we're talking in the in the podcast name superlative, but it's, is, it means you're on the right show. <laughs> that's right. Uh, but we we put this out. It's on the website. We said, look, you 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 get a superlative ownership experience. Now, when when we ask the question, how big we want to be, I think we want to stay true to the brand promise. However big we want to be, we want to stay true to this promise. And I think um, we don't look. We're not going to become fossil group by making you know tens of millions of watches. Um, we look up to any other mid-sized watch company. Uh, a good example would be someone like Christopher Ward. You know, they started small. Um, they started with just a bunch of people, but now they make really good quality watches and they they reached a certain size. Uh, this is certainly not a lifestyle business for me and Mercy. We want to leave behind the brand. Uh, we're we're looking to bring in at some point professional management for the brand to sustain. It's not a lifestyle business. It's not something that. Mercy and I decide to shut shop and move on a few years down the line. Um, but yeah, I mean, we look up to brands like Christopher Ward. And if at some point we get to a size like that, that that'll be it. That's interesting because, again, I think if you ask a bunch of different you know, people in your position that same question, you'll get different answers. I know some people that after doing this for a decade or longer want to be alone. Maybe they have a little help here and there, but some of them are really independent. Other people... Um, take on investors as soon as they can in order to grow. Um, I don't know if there's a right or wrong way. I think what's interesting about the watch industry is that multiple options are available to you, um, but it is it is risky. And I'm thinking about myself as a watch enthusiast and what I appreciate about what you do. And of course, I'm not Indian, but I still like a lot of what you do. And I think it's because I like watches and I like themed watches. And what I can do is I can appreciate from afar, even though I didn't grow up around your culture, I can appreciate how you're trying to build a watch, which I do understand, that increasingly incorporates your culture. And you do it a little bit differently and a little bit more each time. And it's like I know if you did it a hundred times, that after a hundred times you would come up with something which was such a wonderful blend of of traditional watchmaking. Uh, a, a series of things related to Indian culture, probably a lot of stuff actually manufactured in India, but also have sort of a a global appeal to it, where there's a lot of themes and values that that are internationally appealing. And I think that that's you know where something like a Rolex is, right? Like people don't think about these days, but it's essentially like a quirky Swiss product, right? Mm. It's become so internationally known, but there's sort of a cultural element to it that you get above and beyond the utility. And it's difficult to sort of know it while you're doing it, and it's it's difficult to be in the brand to have a good sense of it. But as you do it longer, you further deepen that personality. You know, w- what do you think a Bangalore watch company product would look like? You know, a hundred iterations in. I'm just curious what you what you'd say. So, so Ariel, today, 35 percent of our ownership is overseas, you know, outside of India. Yes, there's a bit of uh, you know in, in Indian ethnic people that live overseas that have natural affinity to the to the watches that we make, but we know a lot of people that are not of Indian origin, Indian ethnicity that still gravitate towards the brand and towards the watches we make because they're simple, uh, they're well made, and they have a very different line of storytelling that appeals to them. Uh, and I you know I think 
a hundred iterations down, we will continue to do the same as long as we stick to our brand promise to say, look, every watch that we make will have a modern Indian backstory, but will not overdo it. We'll make it in a way that is still contemporary that appeals to a global audience. And I think there are there's the stories that we can tell from India are limitless, uh, be it space, science, aviation, um, you know, art. Uh, the storytelling is limitless, and as long as we are good at translating that story to watches that appeal to a wider demographic. You know, I think that's the that's the the hard challenge is is to know. Okay, there's a design, there's a story. How do you make a watch? How do you translate this into a watch that appeals to not only a select small group of people but a wider uh, global audience? And and I think that's a something we will learn, as you said, after every iteration. We've already learned in the last four, four and a half years, and I know we'll continue to learn. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about craftsmanship and artisanship and sort of, it kind of gets a little hipstery when you think about it. But, you know, the idea of revitalizing making watches is quirky because it's sort of like traditional and old and no one really needs it. But again, you still love it. There's that emotional element to it. And the world has moved beyond needing, you know, small run batches of mechanical watches to tell the time, right? Like this is a pleasure thing. It's fun, but nobody needs this. So I guess my question is, is there a resurgence in things like craftsmanship, building little machines or art and things like that in, in, in India? Obviously, India is a massive manufacturing place, right? So there's a lot of this in the culture. But, you know, in addition to watches, are there going to be like, you know, Indian-made, you know, motorcycles? Maybe there are already and interesting fashion and things like that. Like, is this an emergent thing? Is it already a thing? I'm just curious what the context is and how, you know, your company might fit into all that trending. That's a great question. You'd be surprised. Indian-made motorcycles are already a big thing worldwide. There's a company in Chennai, in in South India. They the, the company is called Royal Enfield. They make motorcycles. They, oh, of course. Uh, right. You know, yeah. it's a, it's a pretty big phenomenon worldwide. Uh, but there there is a resurgence of Indian-made things, and I think we're seeing that resurgence happen in India. At least we're seeing this day in and day out with coffee, with clothing. Uh, silk, um, handicraft, uh, carpentry. Uh, so there, there is a resurgence. Interestingly, the resurgence is moving in the opposite direction. Uh, for example, uh, if you look at some of the largest department stores in the U.S., um, all the handicraft and all the handmade stuff that they source would have been sourced from India. Uh, and these are now what we call large companies that supply to businesses. They never had a consumer uh, division, but they supplied to other businesses overseas. Interestingly, the second generation, third generation people in the family uh, who who are part of those businesses are now saying, I don't want to just continue what my father or my grandfather did. I want to start a consumer brand of some of the world-class stuff that we're making and exporting from India. And now I want to offer it to not only an Indian audience, but a global audience in a, in a direct-to-consumer approach. Allah Warby Parker, um, and, and we're seeing a huge resurgence of a direct-to-customer um, brand, and, and hundreds of them rising from India now. So it is definitely a thing. I, you know, I can clearly, and as a matter of fact, we there's nobody doing that in India with watches. No one's saying let's create good watches from India with Indian backstories and present it to a global audience. We'd like to think that we're the first to do that in that series of direct-to-customer brands. Wouldn't you agree that when you're the only one, 
it's difficult to get a lot more broad of consumer acceptance, meaning that when you're the only kind of boutique Indian watch brand, it's difficult to say you're part of a category, but when you're one of like four or five, um, it's better because you're part of a class. So on one hand, it is competition, but on the other hand, it legitimizes what you're trying to do. Uh, what are your thoughts on in the coming years, they're probably erupting some competition? So I, I think you're asking a very important question because as a business owner, it's scary to be the only one in a category um, because you're, you're left wondering, are we just early to the party or are we at the wrong party? You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you just, you just don't know. Um, so it's, it's extremely unnerving um, to, to be in that Welcome position. to watch media. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Yes, I would think so. Um, but but it's a very unnerving experience, Arya, to, to be in that position to say, to look around and say, hey, why is it that we're the only one in the class? Are we just early to class or are, are we in the wrong class? Uh, but there is new interest in watches. And I do believe that there is going to be um, more people that get into it. I do believe, though, that the barrier for entry for anybody to start a watch company is high. Mercy and I invested a significant portion of our life savings into this project. Um, we do not have day jobs. We still don't hold on to our tech jobs. This is what we do full time. And we've been extremely fortunate to be able to build a business out of it. That And our customers are being supportive. We're a customer-funded brand. And I, I, I know for sure that that may not happen for, for a lot of other people that start watch businesses. So the barrier for entry is high. The survival rate rate is low, and it's extremely challenging and a working capital heavy business environment. So while I I'm confident that there will be other people that also want to get on get on the on the bandwagon, I also know that it's a challenging environment to operate. I want more people to get in, so the the pie gets bigger, and you know we just don't want a bigger piece of the pie. We want the pie to be bigger. Now let's talk about collaborations, and you. You know, before it was trendy, started, you know, making watches that were a collaboration with a theme or something like that. But these days, collaborations are just increasingly popular and everybody sort of wants to get into it. What are your thoughts overall on collaboration watches and what do you think are the right types of approaches? I'm not saying the right partners to collaborate with, but what are some of the right and wrong ways for Bangalore Watch Company when it comes to collaboration products? When I see collaborations in the market now, I see two types of collaborations. One, where the founders of the businesses have goals that are common and the goals align and they decide to collaborate on a project. That to me is fantastic. On the other hand, I also see some businesses, you know, maybe in the watch industry, maybe outside the watch industry, where a collaboration happens because they, they just think that it's an economically viable project. Um, you know, I, I think, again, there's a market, there's an opportunity, but I don't know if that kind of collaboration excites me personally. So if I think of Bangalore Watch Company and if I think about collaborations, I think of opportunities to collaborate with other brands that perhaps cater to a similar audience with similar tastes. And as a brand has similar ideologies for taking Indian stories global uh, or for changing Indian narratives for certain product categories. And I think, you know, we'd be very open to a collaboration of that sort. I think that at some point you have to make those collaborations happen, right? Like it'd be great if the collaborations knocked on your door and be like, hey, uh, do you want to collaborate? But a lot of times, you know, you have to invent the collaboration and, and that's hard. Do you 
do you take do you spend time imagining like oh what's my next collaboration going to be who would it be great to work with and then thinking of weird ways of convincing them because i i know that a lot of watch brand entrepreneurs have to do that i mean hell i think about that all the time absolutely absolutely we're constantly on the lookout for collaborations we're already doing collaborations so one other thing about collaborations is not just about a product collaboration but it could actually be a marketing collaboration where you think that there is a certain brand uh, which goes after a certain target audience, which has, uh, you know, where there's a similarity to the kind of target demographic that you want to go after as a business. We already do several marketing collaborations where we do events where we bring the the specific brand's audience in. We we show them the watches, we introduce them to watches, and then it may be a coffee brand and they learn about watches, and it may be our customers come in and they learn about coffee. Uh, marketing collaborations like this happen all the time. And we now have a community manager and, you know, she's her 100% focus is going to be events like this. But on the product collaboration, I think that's a, that's a lot more challenging because, you know, there's a lot more involved in just making an evening happen. Uh, but we're, yes, you're right. I'm constantly in the lookout for other brands where we could potentially collaborate to make products that might work. So let's spend the last few minutes talking about the products themselves. We've talked a little bit about the watches for space and the Air Force and, of course, the game of cricket. But what are some of your aspirations? I mean, you're, you're a watch lover at the end of the day. And while you can't necessarily make it right off the bat, what are some of the maybe complications or designs or materials that you dream uh, could be a, a core part of the brand, uh, perhaps in the future? The, the art of telling time has been you know, has been done in multiple ways in Indian culture. And ancient Indian culture has, has, you know, we have our own calendar, which does not comply with the Gregorian calendar. So if there's an opportunity to do a Indian watch that can tell Indian time, not and in, in follow the Indian calendar, you know, there's, there's, our months are based on lunar cycles or years based on solar cycles, very complicated. Um, that would be an aspiration that, you know, that would be fantastic. Um, but that's a Herculean project because you, you have to be able to build a movement that, that tells time differently. Um, and that would be something, you know, if that happens in, 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 in previous life, we use, we use the term BHAG. You probably have heard of it. It's big, hairy, audacious goal. Uh, so this would be a BHAG for us, you know, something that we might want to go after when we have the resources and the and the time and energy to invest in, in a project like this. But you're rewarded for that, right? Because those types of, you know, big, scary projects that, you know, that really strike fear in the hearts of finance people, <laughs> they're the types of things that can ultimately give you a lot of reward. I mean, I would go so far as to argue that those ambitious engineering feats that fail do not fail because they were bad ideas, but often because they weren't communicated correctly or they just needed more time to reach the right people or, or whatever it is. I mean, you know, you, you have to say to yourself at some point, I want to do it just to say that I did it. And if it's cool, it will eventually reach an audience. Because I think that, you know, again, the, the market does to a degree reward the bold. There are going to be failures, but again, all these good ideas, they tend to become popular with the enthusiasts, or, or, you know, eventually. Uh, what are your feelings on that? Absolutely. There's no question about it. I mean, one of the brands, one of the watches that I've been looking up to recently is Acriva, and they've, they've figured out a way to, to tell the sun, sunrise and sunset 
in any city in the world with just micro adjustment to the watch. Um, and I think watches like that are not just exotic, but they're they're really huge feats in 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 mechanical watchmaking. Something that has never been done before. And you're right that it would have a um, an appreciation with a select group of community uh, when we hit certain notes of technical complications in ways that have not been done before. But as a small brand, uh, independent brand, you're you know you're constantly thinking about okay, what's the next collection? What's the next collection going to look like? What's the next project? Are we going to be successful in making this watch versus investing, uh, you know, let's say a few hundred thousand dollars or up to up to a million dollars on a project that might take shape seven years from now? Um, so it's a constant struggle um, of, of being in that position. Well, you have to plan and you have to do things. And now that we are in a time of uncertainty, what do you rely on? What are the signals that you look at that help you to make the decisions for the next six months, 12 months, you know, 36 months? Overall, we're, we're looking at a very positive environment. I'm, I'm knocking on wood here. The, the third, the second wave of the pandemic has passed in India, you know, left a lot of bad taste, but, but the, it's passed. The third wave has been moderate. Um, if not easy, um, the, the, the next 24 months is only looking positive. Um, and of course, even overseas, we're seeing a lot more people beginning to travel. Travel's opened up between countries. So, so people are traveling more. People are more open to go out and do events. Uh, I think there's a lot of positivity. So we're taking a lot of encouragement in that positive trend that we're seeing, uh, in planning our product roadmap. Um, in planning our future releases, uh, and of course, we're we're also beginning to think about getting out and about. We're even planning a a U.S. tour at some point in 2023. Uh, these are all very positive signals for us, and we take a lot of encouragement for that. Now, price point is something that I always find very interesting, especially with new brands that uh, can shift their price point a lot. You haven't shifted your price points too much, but I wanted to ask you if there was a particular sweet spot that you've already discovered or ha- you have yet to discover, you know, what, what that is. Because I think that the the price of a, of a brand, especially its average price point, has a huge effect on the people who buy the product. And of course, you can charge different prices for different products. But I think that a lot of brands these days like to sort of fit within a price range. What is the price range that you think you ultimately want to settle into and, and why? I think it, uh, learning about which price points you want to play in as a business owner, is a learning process. It's not something that you get right at the beginning. Uh, if somebody does, then it's you know I'll give them a lot of credit. Um, I think as a business, you you learn what price points are the right price points for you, and and you 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 strive to reach that price point. And I also know for a fact, coming from uh, tech, I was on the business side of tech. I was not a technical person. I was in consulting and sales and business development. I also know that price points move. You know, businesses make a decision to move price points from one to another. So when we started, Ariel, if you remember, we started with, you know, almost a 500 US dollars, 600 US dollar price point. Today we're operating in the in the 900, 1,000 dollar price point average. Uh, right. We not only right. move the prices, we also believe, and I know you mentioned this in one of the earlier podcast shows. We also believe that we've genuinely improved the product. You know, we uh, we moved to. We moved to Swiss mechanism. We've brought in a lot of, we've internalized a lot of the manufacturing to India, uh, and, and hence the price points have also had to shift. 
Um, I believe the $900, $1,000 price point for the kind of products that we offer is a, is a good sweet spot. Uh, we start there and our, some of our limited editions, some of our special editions go up to $2,300, $2,500. Um, I think we're operating in a good sweet spot right now because we also have to balance uh, the market positions of India, which is 60, 65% of our market and market positions and market perceptions of our overseas customers, which is 35% of our market. That's very interesting. I mean, uh, this is such a great overview of what you've done with Bangalore Watch Company. I hope that people get excited about the brand simply because of the passion that you and your wife obviously have. Um, you know, we didn't talk too much about the design of the watches other than sort of the the bezel that, that allows <laughs> you to track your the cricket games. Um, but I encourage everyone to go and check out Bangalore Watch Company products because um, there's there's uh, it's 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 a very uh, restrained and I think in a good way uh, approach to to watchmaking, especially when there's a themed element. And so that that level of sort of design restraint, I think, is probably one of the most successful things you 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 were able to introduce to a brand new brand. Is there any exciting products that you want to mention for people to look forward to and any remaining things that you'd like to plug or websites or social media pages you'd like to advise people to go to? Yeah, sure. Um, look, I, uh, we, we're now playing on these three specific themes. Uh, the one theme is watches inspired by Indian cricket. The other theme is watches inspired by aviation. These are classic type A, type B pilot inspired watches. And then we have a series of titanium case watches inspired by the Indian space program with Fume dials, dual crone, internal rotating bezels. It's a very cool watch. The, these are the three main themes that we lead with. And we're absolutely looking to add one or two more themes with two entirely different backstories um, in 2023. Uh, we'll, you know, we're absolutely back on a blog to watch with uh, when we launch when we launch those watches. Um, but but for any information, please uh, reach out and you can check out uh, check out the watches on BangaloreWatchCo.in and check out our Instagram. We're we're posting actively on Instagram and the team makes sure that they put a lot of photos of our new studio and our new facility. Uh, and the team is happy to help anytime when you when you give a shout out. Thank you. My guest has been Mr. Niryupesh Joshi, co-founder of the Bangalore Watch Company. Niryupesh, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Ariel. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit ablogtowatch.com.